Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double N. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 737 of the podcast and it is Friday the 9th of February 2024 as I record this. In today's show, I have an interview on writing and producing a low-budget, independent film with Jeffrey Crane Graham. And this will interest you if you've written or want to write a screenplay, or if you want to get your work adapted or pitch it to a producer, which, let's face it, so many of us do. In fact, this interview inspired me to take action. And I talked to Jeff about Catacomb, my horror novella, which I wrote last year. And it is actually on a 99 cent ebook promotion right now if you want to read it on my store, jfpenbooks.com, and also on all the usual stores. Now, I adapted Catacomb to a screenplay once I'd finished the novella because I kind of wrote it, and we talk about this in the discussion, I wrote it partly in response to to an, an agent who said, write something cheaper, <laughs> cheaper to film, basically, than what I normally write, which is pretty massive scope and lots of explosions and potentially expensive. So I did write this kind of budget film, and I wrote the screenplay. I did a pitch deck... <laughs> And I didn't do anything with it. Now, part of this, I've been thinking about this, is it is way out my comfort zone to pitch. Now, one of the wonderful things about being an indie author is you don't need to pitch anyone. You don't need to get rejected by agents because you don't pitch them. (laughs) And I have not pitched uh, a screenplay. So I have a ticket for London Screenwriters Festival in April, and I'm going to pitch it there. And I'm telling you now. So I do have a meeting coming up this week. I've booked someone. I'm paying a uh, a consultant, basically. I'm going to practice my pitch with this industry professional. We will see how it goes. But uh, my definition of success is to turn up and pitch at that festival. I'm not saying, oh, yes, my definition of success is to get a film deal, because as we know, that is not with within our control. What is within my control is to do the best pitch I can at that festival. And so I'm telling you that now, so I am held accountable. But I also wanted to ask you a question, which is, what action could you take creatively or with your author business that will push the boundaries of your comfort zone in the next weeks or months? Let's say up to three months time. What are you going to do to push your comfort zone. And uh, that could really range. So for example, I talked to someone this week who absolutely admitted to perfectionism and and a sort of inability to get stuff out there. And perfectionism, you know, partially stems from that fear of putting something out, (laughs) the fear of people attacking you and all of that kind of thing. But as you know, if we don't put our work out there, if we don't try and get it into the world, then yeah, sure, no one's going to attack you, but no one's going to read it either. So I think there's lots of ways we can stretch our comfort zones. And yeah, so I am intending to stretch mine. I'm interested in how you're going to stretch yours. So as part of your response to this podcast, you can always email me, joanna at thecreativepen.com. You can leave a comment on the show notes or on the YouTube channel. So the discussion with Jeff, which sparked all this, is coming up in the interview section. So in publishing, book marketing and AI things. So on book marketing, BookBub put out an article about six types of submission comments BookBub editors love to see. Now, this is important if you want a BookBub deal as you want to stand out in their pile of submissions. They mention notes on dates and timing flexibility on price point, for example, 99 cents or free. Mention tropes that are in your book because they have to craft a little um, a little line. So if you help them, that's really good. Also, what spoilers not to mention. Add publication, quotes and reviews, as well as any other categories your book might be relevant for. And the overarching tip here, relevant to so much of marketing, is make it easy for that person to say yes to you. 
The same is true if you're pitching any kind of media. Understand who you are pitching and why. Make your pitch relevant, short, to the point, and include some kind of hook that shows your content is exactly what they want. You need to put in the work yourself so they don't have to. So is it still worth getting a BookBub deal? Yes, absolutely, if you have a plan for how to maximise that reach. So for example, it's book one in a series, uh, maybe a long series, and you have other full price books, or you're trying to get reviews or hit a list or something like that. Uh, There is no point paying for a BookBub deal if you only have one book and you don't know what you're going to do with it, you're not capturing any emails or any of that kind of thing. So all of of book marketing should have a point. But remember, you don't have to get a BookBub deal in order to use their pay-per-click ads. And I actually have some ads running right now on Catacomb. You can also run BookBub ads to your direct store. So if you have Shopify or WooCommerce or Payhip or whatever, you can actually run them to another URL. Um, I haven't found such success with that compared to meta ads, but it can work for some things. Always worth testing. And of course, remember, it's worth testing at different times. So if, if something didn't work for you last year, it's worth trying again after a couple of months to see what might have changed. Also in marketing, Jane Friedman has an article on author platform is not a requirement to sell your novel or children's book. And this is a really good article to read, a good reminder of what is important in these different ways. She goes into why you need a platform, yes, if you are selling adult (laughs) non-fiction, but why it might not be so necessary for uh, novels or children's books. Jane says, if you're selling these types of things, fiction or children's books, the agent or publisher has to have genuine enthusiasm for the story or the writing itself. They tend to trust their instincts on story quality or story marketability. And if they don't love it, they'll have trouble convincing anyone else of the same. Now, Jane says, if you're a TikTok sensation or a self-published author who's driving tons of views and conversation about your work, fabulous, agents and editors will approach you. You don't even have to query. But if your following isn't enough to proactively attract agent or publisher attention, I don't think it plays a meaningful role when you're going on submission or submitting a query. So yes, once again, you do not have to be on TikTok to be a successful author. Of course, if you choose to, fantastic. But I get too many people these days saying, oh, I'm kind of, I have to get on TikTok. It's the only thing that works. It's just not true. And it's yet another platform where if you're not enjoying it as a consumer, just don't try and do it. Like, for example, I also had someone else the other day say, oh, I'm going to do serial. I'm going to publish my book in you know, on serial platform like Vela or one of those other ones, uh, Ream or whatever. And I was like, oh, so you read a lot of serial fiction. And they said, no, no, not at all. <laughs> I'm like, okay, no, that's another game. And even again, like if you want to put your book in KU and do really well in KU, do you read books in KU? And all of these things are different games. Like Jane is very experienced in traditional publishing and also academic publishing. And her website, janefriedman.com, is fantastic on those kind of aspects. And you have to remember that we each of these things is a different game. If you want a traditional publishing deal, it's a different game than, for example, being successful in KU or being successful on Shopify or Ream or whatever. So you have to remember that these are all different games or TikTok or whatever, podcasting. <laughs> Every single one of these things is a different game with different rules and you can't do them all. You have to choose. So yes, I read this article and was like, oh, I'm going to talk about it because you do not have to be on TikTok (laughs) as an author. Now, I also was thinking about this in terms of a platform. Again, remember, my platform here is for nonfiction. Very, very, to very tiny percentage of people who follow me as Joanna Penn actually buy my books as JF Penn. More of you bought Pilgrimage, which is fantastic. But um, and hopefully for Gothic cathedrals when that comes out. But definitely uh, my platform for fiction is kind of I guess I have books and travel podcast but that's been dormant for a while and it is really that was really for pilgrimage and um, maybe gothic cathedrals as well but for fiction I really only have uh, books in a series and I have meta ads 
yes, I use Instagram, but I don't use it as a driving a lot of stuff. I am not particularly social, <laughs> social media. So I just post pictures of my cats and my travels and stuff. But yes, um, I thought I would mention that because we have to think about something. We have to do something. But I have talked to a few people in the last few weeks who have significant financial goals. So as in, I want to make X amount of money. It might be six figures. It might be multi six figures. And when I asked, oh, you know, fantastic, you can have these very audacious financial goals, but what is your business plan? And the answer has been write more books in a series. And that is not a business plan. That is a production plan. (laughs) And a production plan is, this is the product I'm going to make. Uh, But it doesn't include an understanding of customers who will actually buy your books or how you're going to reach those people, the marketing side or an income model for how the money's going to come in and an understanding of costs and so much more. So I wanted to bring this up and also encourage you to read your author business plan, which is one of my books, or business for authors. So you can understand that there's a lot more to this business if you have those kind of goals. Now, the books are on all the usual stores. You can uh, I narrate them as audiobooks, or you can order them from me, creativepenbooks.com. And I have a discount code for you, which will give you 50% off the ebook, audiobook, PDF workbook or digital bundle for your author business plan or business for authors. So go to creativepenbooks.com. One of the, and this is not for the print books, there are print books and print workbooks, but the 50% off is just for digital. Use the discount code PLAN, P L A N, all caps. So all capital letters, P L A N, and get 50% off your author business plan or business for authors. There is no expiry date on that coupon because I really want you to be successful in that area. So yes, lots happening as ever in business and marketing. And you again, and I said to uh, one of the people I was talking to, you don't need to write like a book when it comes to a business plan. You can do it all on one page in your journal. Just open up a page in your journal and write down some things under some certain headings in order to give yourself a way to go, uh, a direction to go in. And rather than trying to do everything, because that's, that is the point at which we are right now. There are so many options for publishing. There are so many options for marketing. So you cannot do them all. You have to choose. And if you write it down, you are far more likely (laughs) to be able to resist all the shiny objects. So in personal news, I am heavily into first draft writing for Spear of Destiny. And as ever, it's pretty intense. Now, yes, I've got more experienced at writing over the years, but I don't find it makes the process any easier. And I guess the fun is stretching ourselves even more with each book. I have been inputting big time for Spear of Destiny Uh, Like I went on this uh, trip to Europe, I've been reading a lot of books. (laughs) I just can't help myself. I've been watching documentaries, I've been watching YouTube videos, and I'm at the point of going, no, 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 you have to write, you have to write the scene. And in fact, the scene I'm uh, working on earlier is actually in the Hofburg, where I was, in the treasury, in the Schatzkammer, and where the Spear of Destiny is, and I'm writing the scene set where I was. (laughs) like a couple of weeks ago. So in a way, it's really fun. And in a way, it's like coming back to characters I haven't written for a little bit. And uh, I left Morgan in a bit of a state at the end of uh, Tomb of Relics. So I'm getting back into the point of view of the characters and all of this kind of thing. But yeah, it's, it's fun in a way. And it's also challenging. So I wanted to just remind you that I don't find writing massively easy. (laughs) But I guess that's part of why we do it. It's a challenge and we like to overcome a challenge. Now, I'm a binge writer. I don't write every day normally, but when I focus on a book, I focus. So most mornings and some afternoons and weekends right now are dedicated to writing this first draft. I'm a discovery writer, so I know a few things about the story, but it is emerging as I write. And I do trust emergence. And a character just appeared actually yesterday and is turning into something much bigger than I expected. And then, of course, I get spin-off ideas. And 
just this becomes this this avalanche of of ideas that I have to then corral into something, taming the chaos I call it in how to write a novel. Um, but yes, I know it will come together. But I'm in the writing first draft chaotic phase of my process right now. I, I don't plot. This is the fun of discovery writing, and um, yeah, as I said, fun but also a challenge. So if you want to see the cover, and the cover will give you some ideas as to the type of research I'm doing, jfpen.com forward slash destiny. That is the Kickstarter pre-launch page with the cover, jfpen.com forward slash destiny. And it is Spear of Destiny, the uh, which is the relic, the sword that pierced the side of Christ and promises victory in battle. And talking of Kickstarter, my friend Sasha Black also known as Ruby Row, has a Kickstarter running right now. If you like lesbian vampire romance, you'll definitely want to check it out. <laughs> and if you go to kickstarter.com and search for Ruby Row, R-U-B-Y-R-O-E. Now, I have to admit, much as Sasha is a good friend of mine, lesbian vampire romance is not my chosen genre. But... I have backed the campaign because there is a very beautiful hardback edition with rainbow foiling. <laughs> now, this is three book vault and I really want one because I need to see this rainbow foiling. Now, Sasha's done some videos. You can you can see it. It's kind of this gorgeous, shiny uh, cover. It's beautiful. And uh, I, I'm sorry, Sasha, I may not even read the book. <laughs> But I want the hardback edition because, uh, and this is, I do actually buy a lot of these at the moment. I'm, I'm buying a lot of books as a physical product as I learn a bit more about this and try and figure out what I want to create in the future. And I'm looking at the rainbow uh, foiling and it's making me think about various things. I'm going to use silver foiling on Spear of Destiny. You'll see why <laughs> when you see the cover. But yeah, I think it's fascinating to see the types of quality we can do um, with uh, printers like Book Vault. Also, this is the kind of behaviour that Kickstarter causes in bibliophiles. And in fact, right now in my room, I have the hardback of A Thousand Libraries, which I also bought on Kickstarter. And uh, I don't know the, the people who created that. I just saw a beautiful looking book and I wanted to own it because we love books. So yes, have a go and certainly go and have a look at the Kickstarter for Ruby Row anyway, if you are thinking of doing a Kickstarter for fiction, because I think there's some really good ideas there. So I also got the new fully rewritten author blueprint back from my editor. And what's so funny is I'd said in my 15 year pivot that I wanted to spend 80% of my time on JF Penn. And yet... <laughs> This rewrite of the blueprint was pretty significant. Uh, what I am doing is formatting it and I'll be sending it out to the email list in the next, probably in the next week as this goes out. If you're on my list, thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint, you'll be able to get that for free. And uh, yeah, so that is there. I'm, I might even do a print edition and an audio edition because it is pretty much everything. It's everything that I think right now. <laughs> It contains writing, publishing, marketing, making a living and futurist stuff all in one book. It's about 27,000 words. So it's a, it's a proper short nonfiction book. Also, if you're interested in memoir or in my book Pilgrimage, I'm on the QWERTY podcast with Marion Roach-Smith talking about writing memoir and the very personal and difficult aspects of putting yourself out there in the memoir uh, format. So that is the QWERTY podcast with Marion Roach-Smith. Links in the show notes to everything I'm talking about. So thanks for your emails and comments and photos this week. Thanks to Mary, who says, I started listening to the podcast last year. Here is a picture of me listening at work. I'm a shelver at a local library. And it was a lovely picture of Mary by a stack of books, which of course is wonderful. Mary says, I'm also fairly new to self-publishing. One of my goals this year is to get more organised and professional. I registered locally for my business name and imprint and opened a business checking account. I've been going through your book, Your Author Business Plan. Thank you for all your wonderful resources. So, Mary, fantastic. I love it when people take action. Opening up a business checking account, even if you haven't set up a separate um, sort of business itself, is brilliant because that's the first step to taking it super seriously. So that is fantastic. 
Also, Pauline sent a picture uh, of a cathedral saying our Australian cathedrals are not as grand as those in Europe, but I do love the Sacred Heart Cathedral in the rural city of Bendigo, where my grandparents married over a 100 years ago. And that was a lovely picture. Thank you, Pauline. Of course, I lived in Australia, not in Bendigo. I lived uh, in Brisbane for nearly five years and uh, also worked down in Sydney and various other places, as well as travelling around. So, yes, definitely have some fondness for Australia. It was where I started my indie career. And also MT Maguire added a comment to the episode on how generative AI search will impact book sales, which I know I keep on harping on about, but it's so important. And MT said, this was so useful. I listened to the podcast in the car the other day. I'm glad you have it here so I can take it away, mark it up, read, learn and generally digest it. So yes, remember, there is a transcript of the episodes that I do. There's not a transcript of this introduction, but the transcript is always there for the interview. MT says, I'm pretty excited as this seems to finally lean into the way I work rather than against it. For the first time in 15 years, I might actually have the time and bandwidth to maximise on this development. So yeah, I'm excited. So I'm really glad of that positive response to how things are changing because that's actually how I feel too. I feel released by AI, because it frees me up from so many things I used to think I had to do. But, and maybe we did have to do it all in the pre-generative AI days, but now the game is changing once more. And that's great because I can just focus on what I want to do and be as weirdly me as possible. So please leave a comment on the podcast show notes at thecreativepen.com or on the YouTube channel or email me, send me pictures of where you're listening, joanna at thecreativepen.com. I love to hear from you. It makes this more of a conversation. But as ever, please don't message me on social media as I am barely there at all. So today's show is sponsored by Drafter Digital, self-publishing with support. And this is one of the great reasons you might choose to publish through Drafter Digital. They have a customer service team who can help you. And sometimes that's what you need. And we all know about platforms who do not respond to emails and are just difficult to use sometimes. So you can publish ebooks to all the big platforms through Drafter Digital as well as to library systems. You can also publish print books and they can help you through that process too. They have formatting tools, free formatting tools and an easy publishing system. I use Drafter Digital for my ebook distribution to Nook, library systems and now even to Apple since their system has got a little old. <laughs> I also use the excellent payment splitting for my co-written book The Relaxed Author with Mark Leslie Lefave, a great option if you're co-writing and don't want to manage the payments all the time. There are no charges for formatting or updating your book. They take a distributor 10% of retail price on sale. No upsells, no service packages, no fees of any kind. Set your price to whatever you want, even free. Make as many changes as you want to your book, update the cover, distribute it to any and every sales channel you want. It's your book, your choice, your world. They also have marketing tools and promotional opportunities available. I just got an email yesterday about a promotion with Biblioteca and another for Apple. Drafter Digital says, your book is your priority. Our priority is you. We build tools and services that let you focus on writing while we take care of layout, publishing, distribution, print-on-demand paperbacks and more. Check them out at draft2digital.com. That's with a number two, draft2digital.com. So this type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing. But my time in creating the show is sponsored by my community at patreon.com forward slash the creative pen. Thanks to the 19 new patrons who've joined since last week. And thanks to everyone who's been supporting the show for months and years, many of you. Last week, I put out a video conversation with Mel Amade, who you might have seen if you were at 20 Books Vegas last year. She did a demo for the community on how to use ChatGPT for market research for your book, which was super useful. I really enjoyed our chat and, and the demo. It's, uh, it's, it's just over an hour of us talking about AI and showing you how to use ChatGPT for market research and um, marketing stuff. If you join the community, you get that and all the backlist videos and audio, as well as access to the monthly Q&A where you can ask your questions, which is an extra solo show a month. 
The Patreon is now a monthly subscription, the equivalent of a black coffee a month or a couple of coffees if you're feeling generous. So if you get value from the show and you want more, come on over and join more than a thousand authors in the community. Join us at patreon.com, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash the creative pen. And remember, there is a Patreon app so you can access the videos and the audio through the app. It's really easy to watch and listen. Right, let's get into the interview. Jeffrey Crane Graham is a writer, director and podcast producer. He wrote and directed the multi-award-winning film Always Lola and has also written comedy shorts. And he produces and co-hosts the Screenwriting Live podcast. So welcome to the show, Jeff. Thanks, Joe. I'm honored to be on the show. As I told you um, before we went on air, I'm a fan of your podcast, so I, uh, I'm glad to be here. Oh, good. Well, lots to talk about. But first up, tell us a bit more about you and how you got into screenwriting and film. Yeah, so I'm from Cleveland, Ohio, and I feel like I got especially interested in writing in middle school. I was writing a lot of short stories, and I feel like in high school, I like got the ambitious idea, like, I'm going to try to write a novel. And that's something I would still like to do before I die. But I think I always think of novelists as like real writers and screenwriters are (laughs) aspirational (laughs) novelists. But just because the idea of a novel, I think, is so intimidating. But the idea to first kind of start writing for film and TV, I think most screenwriters can point to like a movie that feels pretty definitional for them. And I think for me, that would have been Little Miss Sunshine. It was the first movie I watched where I really kind of subconsciously thought like, Somebody wrote this. Like, I feel like film culture is so, especially feature films are so built around the idea of directors being the author of the movie, whereas I'm always most interested in who penned the script. And Little Miss Sunshine, I remember watching it and like specifically loving the dialogue and the twists with the characters that you learn throughout the journey. And I distinctly had the realization that like somebody literally wrote words on a page that these actors are saying, and I have to know who that writer is. Of course, that writer is Michael Arndt, who in such a cool full circle way, I um, got to interview on the show I co-host, The Screenwriting Life. And I did my best to maintain professionalism as I told him he was one of my heroes. And then from there, I just started writing more and more scripts. I ended up optioning a half-hour pilot, which kind of got me excited to move to Los Angeles. And here I am now talking about my debut feature film, which is called Always Lola. Oh, a few things I want to follow up on there. First of all, it's so interesting. You talk there about when you notice the writer. And I, I was just thinking about the TV show Succession, which I love. Of and one of the best of all time. Yeah. And th- the dialogue is so good. It's so cutting. It's the most like violent family dialogue, but not in a violent way. You know what I mean? Of course, it's, yeah. And it, it's one of those shows where I'm like, wow, these writers are really good. Um, and then mm. the other example I was thinking of recently, we're watching, well, we were watching season two of Reacher, the TV show. Uh-huh. And season one, I don't even know if this is true, but we were like, season one had great writing. Season two had terrible writing. Interesting. <laughs> It happens. Yeah, yeah, and it's interesting how, because often we don't think about the screenwriter or the screenwriting team. And when you were saying that, it's really the first time I've thought about when do you really notice the writer as opposed to the director? Well, it is interesting. I'll talk about Succession. I don't know as much about Reacher. Um, and it's funny because television is also an interesting one, and I'll get to this, but it's so collaborative that sometimes you're not sure if it's like the studio or the directors or the showrunner or someone in that room. And that's true of movies as well. But I, I think with Succession especially, Jesse Armstrong had had such a long career as a comedy writer. I don't know if you're a Peep Show fan, but no, he... No. Great, great show. He co-created that with a writer I quite admire named Sam Bain. But because he had worked so long, specifically kind of in more comedy zones, I think Succession was such an interesting synthesis of, it's a hilarious show, like you mentioned, and the dialogue is so cutting and brutal. But it's also this Shakespearean Mm. look at the intensity of family and legacy and living up to the impossible standards that your parents set for you. And interestingly, Jesse Armstrong hired a ton of playwrights for that show. So a lot of the writer's room came from like acclaimed, underseen, like West End plays. So because I think playwriting especially is so dialogue heavy, and Jesse Armstrong has talked about the influence of Shakespeare on his work, maybe that's why the writing especially stands out. Because I also think, interestingly, I think when you look at 
playwriting, the playwright is usually considered the author of the work, whereas in screenwriting, sometimes the director is considered the author of the work. And I've always kind of objected to that. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. So for, from the big sort of TV shows and the big films, and you describe Always Lola as a micro-budget feature. Mm-hmm. So just explain a bit more about that. Like, did you do absolutely everything? Tell us about the process of getting that done, basically. I, I did a lot of it, I will say. I, I want to be careful to make sure I'm giving credit to all the departments who helped on the film. But it is interesting, with your first feature especially, so much of it is just kind of pulling the cart yourself and getting it over the finish line. Budgetarily, and I'm happy to talk about this, it's a big part of your show, I would say like 80% of the budget, which for production was somewhere between twenty dollars and $30,000, was my own savings with probably 20% of that coming from producers. And then once we got into post-production, there were some additional costs that come up from editing and color correction and sound. So financially, a lot of it is my own investment. And yeah, I mean, obviously, I, I wrote the script. I was a huge part of make, getting the movie cast. I did write for a number of actors that I already knew who were sort of in development with me before we even decided to put it up on its feet. But for some of the characters, I cast them in a very traditional way. And I did it by reaching out to agencies through my production company email that I founded to make to put the movie together and cast that in a traditional way. I think it's really important to credit my director of photography, a brilliant DP named AJ Young. I think this was his 11th feature. And I think like the look And the way the movie is lit, I worked very closely in tandem with him. And he has a ton of experience on like big budget movies all the way down to these sort of scrappy micro budget films. So he really understood how to work with the budget we have to make it look as good as it could. So I will credit him. But in terms of the other departments and post-production, most of it was just me. (laughs) Mm. Yeah, so and, and that's why I guess we're talking really is that you're an indie filmmaker and done it on this. This it's funny that you say twenty to thirty thousand, which was your savings and obviously a lot of your time and your relationships and all of these things you put into it. So this is a labor of love. So just tell us about the idea behind the film. Like what possessed you to do this? <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. I'll talk from like a personal perspective first, and then practical perspective second. Um, The story is kind of a feel-good coming-of-age dramedy. A lot of critics have mentioned the movie The Big Chill, which was a big inspiration for me as I was writing. I love Lawrence Kasdan, and in general, I sort of love 80s hangout ensemble dramedies like The Big Chill or The Breakfast Club or pretty much anything that John Hughes was doing in the 80s. I think it's harder and harder to find kind of character-driven dramedies that were so popular, and they've kind of gone away, so... I think I bring that up because the movie is loosely inspired by the death of my best friend from high school. The movie follows these five best friends who are reuniting on their annual camping trip to mourn the loss of their friend who used to throw that trip. But on this trip, obviously, she's not here because she died the year before. And as they kind of talk and discover secrets around her death during the trip, it threatens to not only destroy their friend group, but their memory of her and their understanding kind of of their own mortality, which I think is a really important coming of age moment. I always say that losing a parent or a grandparent is a very specific kind of grief, but losing a peer, especially as a teenager, is a very different kind of grief. And I think most people can point to that first moment they lost someone who was their age. So that's really kind of what the movie's about. Uh, From a practical perspective, it's funny, I'd written this draft with the intention of really writing and putting together a low-budget, practically shootable film. And with the idea of either giving it to a producer or sort of pitching it out as something that could be made on a really low budget. And this was all kind of happening as the pandemic was really reaching its peak. And obviously, the pandemic was horrible. But if we wanted to look at one silver lining, I do think it forced a lot of us, especially creatives, to assess why they were really living their life, you know, as things were slowing down for them. And my wife actually looked at me and she was like, okay, as things have slowed down and we're sort of taking a 30,000 foot view of our our own life, uh, we have two options here. One of them is to grow old in a nursing home and be 95 and still talking about the movie we never made. And the other option is to just try to figure it out ourselves and see what happens. And both of those sound really, really hard, but I actually think the regretful one sounds much harder. So we have to make the other hard choice. And that was the moment when we decided to kind of go all in. Oh, there are lots more things there. So 
First of all, I love this phrase, practically shootable, because I've written a few screenplays and I adapted some of my own work. And I did one for a, a pilot with my map walkers and uh, this is kind of a feature. And I pitched it to an agent and they said, oh, this is like $100 million. And I was like, OK. And he said, can you write something cheaper and I guess more effective? So what is this practically shootable that people should know about if they want to write screenplays or books that might get adapted? It's a great question. And I kind of have a two-pronged answer for this, if that's okay. It's funny. A lot of studio working screenwriters would say that when you approach the page as someone who wants to kind of get into the system and maybe be selling your work or getting staffed on a TV show, you shouldn't be thinking about budget as you approach the page. And instead, you should just be writing the sample that feels like most true to your voice and version of you as a writer that you can. But I think there's also another prong that's kind of increasingly important to think about, which is if you plan on producing your own work, especially early in your career, I think it used to be sort of like in the old days of Hollywood that you could kind of build your career on just a sample and it would get bought and sold and then you'd be in the system. But more and more, especially for feature film writers, especially writer-directors, their kind of debut is more self-produced. You know, in the 90s, I look at filmmakers like Robert Rodriguez and Kevin Smith. And even recently, Lena Dunham, her early work was self-produced on a micro-budget. There's a filmmaker I like a lot named Cooper Reif, who just won a big award at Sundance a couple years ago. His first feature was self-produced for like 16 grand. There's a really exciting filmmaker named Emma Seligman. She had a movie come out this year called Bottoms that I think is like one of the best of the year from last year. But her debut feature film, Shiva Baby, is also kind of a masterpiece, and that was self-produced. So I bring all of that up because it's more and more of a viable way to launch your career as an indie filmmaker to start, which then gets you those meetings and gets you into the system to pitch your more expensive movie. So when you're thinking about a practically shootable film, you do want to be thinking about budget, and you want to be thinking about what you can actually do to get your film up on its feet and kind of not shoot outside of your means. So things like limiting your locations, you know, locations are by far one of the most expensive elements of a feature film. It's called a company move when you ask your entire production, cast, crew, wardrobe, crafty, food to move to a new location. And obviously on a production, time is money. So the less you can be moving around, the better. So I encourage feature filmmakers, especially micro-budget feature filmmakers, to think about these sort of 50 or less, 50K or less movies as their own kind of genre and look at them as a case study. What are the commonalities? Usually it's a small cast, limited location, not a ton of set pieces, maybe a juicy character-driven theme. And if you're interested in this, I actually do teach a five-part course on what it means to write, produce, edit, and distribute a micro-budget film. And I've become obsessive about this, so I'll include the link to that class in the description below if you're interested in taking it. Oh, great. Yeah, we can add that in at the end. But what's funny is after I did pitch this expensive thing, I did end up writing a horror micro budget. So I wrote a novella, it's called Catacomb. And I also wrote the screenplay alongside it. And I made a pitch pack and all of this. And then I haven't done anything at all with it because I guess I'm scared. I I, I have booked a a place at a pitch fest in a couple of months, but I am a little, I guess, scared about doing it. So what are your thoughts for authors who want to get their books on screen, but don't necessarily want to adapt them themselves? Yeah, I mean, I totally understand this. Screenwriting is a totally different medium and craft than novel writing. Similarly, like the idea of adapting my debut feature into a novel is uninteresting to me, to be totally honest. So I I understand that. First of all, I think you're smart to be looking at horror as a practical way to put a micro-budget film up on its feet. They're usually the most lucrative when it comes to these low budgets. Of course, the two most famous versions of micro-budget feature films are The Blair Witch Project and Paranormal Activity. So I think what I would do is look for other super low-budget films that might feel similar in tone or look or story to yours and look at who's producing on those. And you got to think, those producers are also at the beginning of their career, and they want to keep their train on the track as well. So looking at those names, going to IMDb or IMDb Pro especially, and seeing if you can find a contact or way to reach out, and just sending a little email over and saying, I love your work. First of all, flattery is one of the most important ways to make a good connection with someone. 
be honest about what you loved about their material and let them know, hey, I'm a novelist. I have this IP. It's well-reviewed and I think it could make a great feature. Would you ever want to get a coffee and just talk about it? And I would say 99% of the time, these up-and-coming producers will at least take the meeting because you've got to remember their job is to get work made and they want to keep their name on projects. So it's a mutually beneficial relationship. I think it's so easy to think about producers as the bad guys or like the scary sort of dark arts element of film production, but they're creatives too. And remember, they got into this business because they're in love with storytelling in a different way. So reach out. You never know what'll happen. It's interesting you say that because there's also a lot of, I say horror again, but horror stories amongst the author community. There's a book called Hollywood versus the writer or Hollywood versus the author, something like that, where Uh there are stories of authors who've done this, you know, sent things in and then films have been made and there are court cases and you must be careful of contracts because you might get ripped off. And I feel like on the one hand, there's a lot of hope, which means there are a lot of rip off things. And then there's also a lot of of fear around what could happen in a bad way. Or even I guess people look at films that are made of books that they love and they say, oh, it was terrible. It ruined everything. And so where's the balance between Hollywood being full of sharks and the the hope of, of making something. Yeah, it's hard, especially I I don't want to sound like a pessimist on the show, but I think like it is an interesting moment in terms of TV and film because the industry at large is not quite as lucrative as it used to be, and everyone from indie filmmakers to big studios are trying to figure out how they can continue to keep the business as financially viable as they can. Streaming has been good in a lot of ways and it's created a lot of jobs for people, but the big lesson over the last 10 years is that it's not profitable, you know? So something needs to change. I think I say all of that because I think like the big $500,000 spec script sale for a first-time writer is not really happening anymore. So I think like there is an element of adjusting your expectations and knowing that like for your first film especially, you might not be doing it as much for the big paycheck as the chance to really launch your career get your work and your voice up on screen and use that as a chance to start doing bigger and bigger things. There are some red flags, however, that I would really look out for. One of them is if a producer is asking you to pay them to take your work out. That's a no, no, no. A producer is invested and on your team. So both of you are looking to benefit and profit from the idea of your work. And that should be the producer is expecting to make money later down the road. When the the movie gets sold... There will be a writer deal and a producer deal, and both of you will benefit from that. But the producer should not benefit until someone is paying both of you, if that makes sense. So that's a big red flag. And keep the rights. If a producer is asking you for like 5% of the rights of the material or whatever, that's also a no-go. Whatever it takes, hold on to those rights. Other than that, I think $1 option agreement, where a producer will pay you $1 to get the right to go shop it around. That's not super uncommon. If you're an unknown, I'd say just be limited about the number of time on that option. Maybe it's six months, maybe it's a year, whatever. But that's not necessarily fishy when it comes to early in your career. Yeah, it's interesting. And you mentioned there that things are not as they used to be. It's the same in traditional publishing and the market's very crowded for all of us as creatives. So given that you're an indie filmmaker, how are you reaching film lovers in such a crowded market? What have you done in terms of marketing? Yeah, you know, of course, podcasts. I'm grateful to be here with you (laughs) now. And I do hope if your audience, if there are some interested aspiring filmmakers, I think you'll like the movie, but it's also worth checking out as a case study to see what you can do for $30,000. As I mentioned, I think it's important to be studying this if you want to do it yourself. But I think it's really important to be, you know, this is a question that indie filmmakers are asking, but this is also a question that big studios are asking. Michael Mann released a movie this year called Ferrari. And of course, he's one of the highest grossing directors of all time. And the movie's just not doing well. And it's interesting because it's the kind of movie that would be like guaranteed gangbusters in the 90s. So I, I think we're all competing for attention. And I think a lot of people are using their free time and their leisure time to be on social media. So I think the best way to get people interested in your work is to try to make organic human connections and build a community of your own. I'm sure, Joe, a ton of your listeners are also invested in your work. I'm lucky I have the same thing. The podcast I do has a decent following, and a lot of those folks have checked out the movie. Festivals were super helpful. You're meeting filmmakers there. 
winning awards at those festivals was nice because that gave us some leverage to promote. But I think trying to make niche connections and find communities to promote your work is going to be a helpful way to get it out there. Mm. So you mentioned there winning awards at festivals, like it's just something that you just add to a checklist. (laughs) So did you aim for that? And I guess, did you do things specifically for specific awards? And then did you just enter them? Or like, what is the festival thing? Oh, the festival circuit. Mm. Well, I guess to rewind a little bit, this whole thing has been such a just process of discovery. Going into the movie, we didn't have any intentions of necessarily selling it. I think Laura and I decided we're willing to take a financial risk just on the opportunity to get this work up on its feet. Give me the chance to direct in the same way that film school would do that, probably for far more money. So really from the start, we thought like worst case scenario, this will be 30K as a chance to get on set, get experience directing and have a feature film, whether or not it sells. At least I'll have a screener link I can send to producers. So everything else, the festival circuit and the awards and the sale and the deal have all been gravy. In terms of festivals, I certainly was not aiming for any kind of award. All of the awards that we've won have been like a really pleasant surprise. Festivals are an interesting one because there's kind of three tiers of film festivals. There's the top tier, which are also markets where films will actually get sold at those festivals. So I know you're international, but for Americans, it would be like Sundance, obviously, the Tribeca Film Festival, the Toronto International Film Festival, and Telluride, maybe South by Southwest. But those are kind of the only five sort of North American festivals where deals will actually be made. I think in Europe, it would be like Cannes, obviously, and then maybe Berlin and Venice. But besides those three, you're not going to see a lot of film festivals where sales are actually happening at those festivals. And so then there's another tier of festivals that are more like second tier film festivals. And those are really valuable for my type of movie where you don't have any big names because you might be able to find like independent agents there or other sort of low-level distributors who you can at least get meetings with. And those are a great way to meet people, generate some momentum and heat and press around your movie to kind of create a different sort of market than you would be at those top-tier film festivals. And the general strategy is to apply to those top-tier film festivals first. That's kind of your lottery ticket. It's unlikely, but you never know. And the reason you want to apply to those first and wait it out is because once you've debuted at a film festival, the likelihood of getting into another film festival becomes far less Because all those festivals, you know, Sundance wants to be the festival to premiere your film. So you want to reserve your premiere status for the festival that you really want to premiere at. So you want to aim for those top tier festivals first. And the relationship building, were you going along to these festivals for years beforehand, sort of seeing how it's all done? I feel like it's quite similar to book awards in the, or conventions. You need to know how things are done. You can't just enter stuff into random things. You know... I think somewhat regretfully, I wasn't really going to film festivals before this feature. And I think had I been, I would have had a little bit more knowledge as to how to play the game. I did have, you know, I set a lot of meetings with filmmakers who had done this already in a very similar model and just grabbed coffee with them to sort of learn what advice they would give me. But I think it's all about knowing your movie. And this is, I'm sure, true for independent novelists as well. But it's like, know what you've made, know your voice and know your market. And look for film festivals that are catering to a similar sort of vibe and work within those parameters. And write a cover letter as you're applying to these festivals and give the festival programmers a reason to program you. You know, if they're getting 200,000 submissions, why would it be advantageous for them to program you specifically? Maybe you're local and you know someone or you know people that would come to the movie Maybe you look at other movies they programmed in the past and how your movie would slate well into their program. So do the work for them and make it easier for them to program your film. And then I guess a lot of us in the indie author community, we use, I guess, more algorithmic marketing around Mm -hmm. keywords and metadata and we do paid ads and all of this. So did you consider any of that at all or has it all been sort of human-based marketing? I mean, on my end, it's mostly been like the human-to-human connection. A lot of the marketing... I will say, even though we're an independent film, we did sell to a distributor, and they have a marketing budget that they need to recoup before we start earning on the film, besides the upfront payment that we got for selling the movie to them. So they have X amount of dollars that they've spent on marketing. 
I don't exactly know where that money went. I know I have a <laughs> meeting with them when we get our first quarterly and they're going to talk through how they marketed the movie. I do think they may have done a targeted ad campaign on Facebook when we first were released on VOD. But I'd say most of the engagement and viewing we've gotten have been through sort of word of mouth. We did get a great Rotten Tomatoes score when we first debuted, which is, I think has been very helpful because there are a number of people who just look for positively reviewed indie films and use that as a chance to check out a movie. I think we released at a good time. We got kind of lucky because we released like right after both strikes resolved. So there was an opening for us. We weren't competing with a ton of big studio movies when we first released. But again, I don't know. I mean, like it'll be interesting to see when we get our first quarterly, like how we're actually doing. And so talk to me in two months and I'll either be thrilled or beating my head against the wall. (laughs) Yeah, well, it's interesting. So you mentioned the strikes there. Of course, the Screenwriters Guild, uh, sorry, the Writers Guild of America, that's right, isn't it? Um, Uh Went on strike. Which is the Screenwriters Guild, of course. Oh, okay, right, yeah. And also the Actors Guild went Uh on strike. And as part of that, that was obviously negotiations for lots and lots of things, but part of that was AI. So Mm -hmm. given that, I mean, we're recording this at the beginning of 2024 and the text-to-video stuff is really starting to take off. So what are your thoughts on AI, uh, the use of AI in filmmaking, whether it's screenwriting or any of the other things? What are your thoughts on using it as a creator without going into the strike stuff? Sure. Yeah. I I think probably like I would be similar to where the guild stands. And there's a writer I like a lot named John August, who has a great screenwriting podcast. And he talks about AI a lot. I don't think we should just like flat out say AI is not a useful tool for creatives. I know a lot of showrunners who will type something dumb in AI just to get the room talking or generate brainstorming ideas to then let creative people actually fuel their own work and write their material. I think what gets very dangerous is when we're asking machines to be writing drafts of something. I think as a brainstorming tool or a research tool, it's very valuable. I think like when we start asking robots to start making art, I get a little scared. (laughs) It's funny, I was talking to my brother-in-law about this, and he was like, why are we afraid of this? Like, technology's been great for creatives. Look at the printing press, right? Everyone was so afraid when that came out, and it's only been great. But the difference to me is that The printing press was a tool that helped work, art, created by people, get into the hands of more people. Something like the internet has been great to reach people and send your work out. But this is the first time in human history we're asking the question, should robots be the ones making the art rather than replicating or distributing the art? And I feel very strongly that once we give over the sort of beautiful beacon of making and creativity over to machines, we're in deep trouble. I say it's a continuum. If you have 1% to 100% computer generated, everyone's going to sit somewhere on that curve because we all use lots of things online in general, a lot of which is now powered by AI. But yeah, there's a big difference between click a button and output a screenplay to using it for like um, I just did earlier. Here's a picture of a door. Give me 10 ideas for what might happen when a theology professor steps through this door. And just like give me some ideas around Uh this for the story. Now, some of that was completely crazy. And some of it was interesting enough to spark other ideas for me. So I think there's the creative creative spark in our creative process, in a human creative process, versus the mass output, which is not something either of us are advocating. (laughs) No, I totally agree. And I think the other important thing is a lot of people will say like, well, you know, people won't just settle for AI generated art. But I would slightly push back on that. I, I think they would, unfortunately. I think people's tastes adapt to the work that's being produced and made for them. And without being specific, I do think there are movies and TV shows that in essence could be AI generated that people really like because that's sort of the cultural bar that the that people are setting for an audience. And I do think it's the job of creatives and producers to be the tastemakers that sort of fuel cultural conversation 
And so I would like to be optimistic enough that people won't settle for crap if AI is making it. But unfortunately, I'm not optimistic enough to believe that because I think if you look at people's taste, it already has been lowered by the tastemakers of popular art today. So I don't want to get too pretentious about this, but (laughs) I do think people will settle for what's made for them. And it's our job to try to make good things. Yeah, although I would also say there's room, I think there's room for different things. So, mm-hmm. in, in example, in the AI audiobook narration space, there are, I listen to a lot of audio. I listen to it on like 1.5, 1.7. I listen to a lot, mostly nonfiction. I, it sounds like every human narrator sounds like a robot at 1.7 speed. It's true. Like, no, it really doesn't true. matter. I just want the information. And yeah. AI narration means that people can have audiobooks, audio content in every language, every dialect that we just can't have otherwise. And I guess the other interesting thing would be McDonald's versus a nice restaurant that you go to. And sometimes you you need a McDonald's, right? No, that's true. That's true. (laughs) I would just love to believe, though, that like McDonald's food, there is still an element of human thought behind it. There are executives at McDonald's who are still invested in making something delicious with a human brain behind it. But I I do agree. I mean, like, I I love my guilty pleasure TV just as much as I love succession. So (laughs) yeah, exactly. um, So it is interesting. But on so that's the screenwriting. But as a filmmaker, if, if you're looking at your career decades ahead, I mean, it's got to be like 100% likely you're going to be using some kind of AI in your production, whether it's special effects or whether it's bit part actors or I don't, music or I don't know. How do you think other parts of AI could be used in the filmmaking process? It's interesting. I, I will say the type of work I write and I'm interested in tends to be kind of very low concept, human driven stuff, at least right now. So it's not like the material I write or like my voice as a writer pushes towards like big special effect type of set pieces. But I I think you're right. I, it's hard. It's hard because we're taking, especially the guilds are taking all of this information and data like step by step. So it's hard for me to answer that, but I want to be someone who is curious and open-minded about it because I do think like the shut down the conversation mentality is a little naive, you know? Mm. Yes, I mean, the obviously those strikes are now over and they got a contract through and it allows the use of AI tools, but not to credit AI as a writer. So as in they can use it in the ways that we've talked about around ideas. Oh, I'll tell you what I did use it for. I've tried Final Draft and I find it really not intuitive as someone who doesn't write in screenplays first. (laughs) So I was writing out kind of uh, turning each scene into just plain text and then I would put it into chat and say can you reformat this for screenplay format <laughs> oh that's fascinating I'd love and to then that. I would put that into final draft and so it just helped me with a bit that is just like a technical thing that I I don't, don't want to spend the time learning final draft <laughs> you right. know what I mean <laughs> yeah no as a tool I understand it and it's like at a certain point if you're doing your own research versus an aggregator doing that research for you, what is the big difference? I think it's just being thoughtful about how it's being executed. And again, the fundamental question, in my opinion, is this a moment when art or creativity is being handed to a machine? Like, is to what I consider the sacred act of creation, is that being handed over to a robot? And it's so interesting to me because I will say, Hollywood has a long history of telling stories about giving too much power to machines. And I can't think of a single one where the the climax of the movie is, I'm so glad we all let the robots win here. You know, it's ah, like... Well, I've got one for you. Uh, okay. The Creator. Have you seen oh, The I Creator? I haven't seen it yet. No, no, no. I've heard it's an interesting one, but I've not it seen is- it yet. Excellent. And it was so funny because I was watching it and it feels almost like a big budget American movie. And then at one point I turned to my husband and I was like, I don't think this is American because of, well, if you, I'm not going to spoil it for you, but I was watching it and I was like, goodness me, this is not an American movie. And it's not the, the producer, screenwriter, director, whatever he is, uh, is Welsh. So that okay. was really interesting for me interesting. because so often you mentioned there, like obviously the Hollywood big budget movies, yeah, Terminator, blah, blah, blah. But they're all pretty much all American. Whereas yeah, I think, yeah, the sort of 
there are different views by different people. The Creator is an excellent, excellent film. It's Great. like one of the best films that I've seen in ages because it's so nuanced and interesting around what the future of AI and robotics could be. So I'm just going to encourage you and other people to watch that. <laughs> Great. Okay, I'll add it to my list right now. Maybe I'll watch it tonight. Yeah, yeah. Although we said there's so much so much to watch in the world, but it's definitely in terms of the AI thing, it, it offers an alternative view. So we're almost out of time, but I did want to cast your mind forward. This is your debut micro budget feature. <laughs> so what are your plans? How does a career progress from there? It's been really helpful for me to have made and sold a film. Obviously, like the big the big picture thing is that like when I set meetings with producers or I'm talking to management, it's I have a tangible product that shows that like I I understand the mechanics of feature filmmaking in a way that, you know, the evidence can't lie because I did it and I sold it and it's on Apple and you can watch it now and that there is an element of grit that comes with having done that that gives you a level of credibility when it comes to the next movie and building your career and being taken seriously as someone in the business. And of course, there's also the small stuff too. Like when we sold the movie, we got a hit in Deadline, which is a major publication that talks about Hollywood news. And then I had a couple folks reach out to me that were like, hey, I saw you in Deadline this week. So it, it's just like a tangible level up that has opened a lot of doors for me as I'm continuing to kind of set meetings and really pitch on the next one. So it's, again, I think in like the 90s, it would be selling your feature script as like the calling card for who you are as a writer. But I do feel increasingly like now it is self-producing your debut feature that serves as your calling card. So I think just the credibility that comes with having done it and now that it's up on platforms and has been written about in the trades, it's at least evidence that I'm not too much of a fraud, <laughs> if that makes sense. <laughs> but is your goal to work with bigger bigger and bigger budgets, bigger and bigger casts, or do you want to stay making the smaller, more people-focused, I guess, movies that you mentioned? You know, it's funny. I have two things I'm kind of working on right now, and one of them is like a bigger budget, maybe like 20 to $30 million kind of big, dumb cruise ship comedy. And the other one I'm working on is like similarly like a small character-driven coming-of-age movie that I think could be made for far less. So I think it's smart for filmmakers to have multiple projects in their cooker that sort of serve different maybe lanes or markets, but I think importantly still really stay true to the voice and sort of um, essence of who that writer is. It's important as you're taking meetings to be able to tell a cogent story about who you are as a writer and what kind of stuff you write so that producers can understand how you would slot as they go to their bosses and pitch the idea of whatever you're making. Especially in Hollywood, I think so much of like finding your lane as a writer is about telling the story of who you are as a writer. That almost feels as, as important as your work. But I, I think if I'm thinking about sort of someone whose career I really admire, I love Nicole Holof Center. She just came out with a movie this year with Julia Louis-Dreyfus called You Hurt My Feelings. I love In the Land of Steady Habits. And she's someone who writes and directs a lot of her own independent features that are really small. But she also writes on big studio movies to kind of come in and rewrite or... Even if she's not directing, she is also in the studio system. So I think she has a really interesting career. And I would love to think that maybe I could get there one day too. <laughs> Fantastic. So tell us where people can find you and also your film course that you mentioned. And of course, always Lola. Totally. Yeah, thanks so much. To connect with me, the best place is probably just head to Instagram. You can find me there at Jeffrey Crane Graham and totally DM me there if you want to connect. I am happy to answer questions and I love connecting with other micro-budget filmmakers. So if you have questions, totally come reach out to me there. And then you can go to my website, which is jeffgramdigital.com. There's contact information there as well. And that's also where you'll find my film course. And it's a five-part class all about micro-budget filmmaking from writing all the way through sales, distribution, and finding an agent. And I even have neutralized agreements and contracts that will serve as a great springboard for you as you jump into pre-production. So that's on my website. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for your time, Jeff. That was great. Oh, this was so much fun. And I mentioned it, but big fan of your show. So I'm honored to be a part of it. 
So I hope you found this episode interesting and that you learned something about the attitude of being an indie filmmaker. As Jeff talked about, you have to bootstrap the creative project you want to put out there. And that might just be the beginning of your career. Don't wait to be picked by someone else. Pick yourself. And also, human connections are increasingly important. And of course, pitch your book or your screenplay if that is your goal. And I will let you know in May how my pitch goes at London Screenwriters Festival. So remember, you can leave a message or a comment on the show notes at thecreativepen.com or on the YouTube channel, or you can email me, joanna at thecreativepen.com. So next week, back to writing craft and mindset as I talk about the hard joy of writing with two co-authors, Sharon Fagan-McDermott and MC Benedictson. And we talk about why we find joy in the work of writing, regardless of outcome. We also talk about writing metaphor and sense of place, why jealousy is completely normal and how to reframe it in a positive way and the benefits and challenges of co-writing. So in the meantime, happy writing and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time. <laughs>